Welcome to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. This is episode three, and uh, it's going to take a while, but not that long. This is the history of philosophy, as presented by Making a Living from Philosophy. I'm not going to drag this out. I really want to talk about more names and ideas than I want to do interpretation or exhaustive presentation. So this is the format, and this episode's not going to have any thinkers. It's just a little short quip about the format. None of these episodes are going to be more than five minutes, so it's going to be a five-minute discussion. All of them are going to be about a single thinker, or a period, or a single historical topic. And I am going to try to be as exhaustive and interconnected as possible. And I am going to try to say do it in less than 50, 50 or less segments. So... There's got to be some kind of selection criteria. I don't know if you've ever read the introduction to any history of philosophy or read through a history of philosophy, but in most of the introductions or the prefaces or forewords to the actual work, you'll have a discussion of the selection criteria. More so than anywhere else in philosophy, it seems, history of philosophy is really a game about selecting what and selecting how to craft and construct a narrative. The one thing I'm going to say about my 50 uh, slots is I'm going to do my best to be as... um, universal as possible and only in the sense of trying to represent as many philosophical uh, viewpoints without sticking to that uh, white European male bias that has such a claim on the tradition (laughs) if you believe that I mean philosophy is all of ours Um, if white European males want to be the one known for putting a name to it, you know, putting faces upon these uh, errors and encapsulating in one book all the thought of a, you know, single period, that's their business. We just want to have some information, frame it, use it to our benefit, whether it be for some freedom from wondering or whether it be for some empowerment towards our own formulations, forms, and functions. Anyways, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited about it personally. So, it's not going to be a 50-day-long affair, since these are only five-minute things. As far as you guys are concerned, listening out there... It could be as long of an affair as you want. It took me years to get through certain histories of philosophy, and that's the right pace. 
you know, so if this is kind of rushing everything for you, you know, put it down. I don't plan to like, take it out of the um, global mind and monetize it and try to charge you for it anytime soon. This is always going to be free. Mm. Not that there's no value to it, there's an immense value to it, but... If we're going to get into monetizing, I have higher standards for things. It doesn't lower the quality of this work, that it's not up to those standards. In fact, it makes it interesting and valuable in a completely and totally different way. A very valuable way. So stay tuned for 5 Minutes History of Philosophies. Gotta love it. Love y'all. Have a wonderful day. Welcome to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. This is episode three, five-minute history of philosophy. This is the introduction, segment zero. The purpose of a history of philosophy, as I previously stated, is to put some form and information to a very broad subject. So it becomes a matter of selection. In Bertrand Russell's History of Philosophy, he states at the beginning that when we consider a thinker, and that thinker's thought doesn't make sense to us, instead of condemning them or criticizing them, we should come to wonder how they ever became to think that way, began to think that way in the first place. The spirit of this history is certainly not critical. It's a spirit of inquiry into thinking of how any of these thoughts began to be had in the first place. I didn't make it so clear in my preface, but I'll make it clear now that I believe that humans adopt philosophers in a way of speaking as emblematic of the thoughts and theories of that era We'll see this um, very clearly when we get to the life of Arthur Schopenhauer. He spent his whole life championing a theory and only enjoyed the celebrity for it in maybe his last 10 years, while the theory of George William Frederick Hegel was popular for most of his lifetime. What we're going to be doing here is we're going to be putting our own emblems and symbols. As I said, I like to incorporate a lot more than just the Western picture, although a good point or a good part of the modern philosophical history is going to end up being the Western picture. I'm going to strive to put as many on the periphery figures as possible. Those sections will all be about a certain subject and not a certain person. For instance, the scientific uh, revolution, or even the Copernican revolution, would be something different than Copernicus himself. As well as uh, nominalism, will be different from William of Ockham. Anyways, we have a lot, a lot to talk about. And 
as an observer, as a listener, it is best to try to take away just as complete of a picture as possible on each of these topics from the very little information you could get in five minutes. But still, we're going to have some complete picture, something to look at, and definitely it will be something interesting and compelling. Even when we consider making a history of philosophy and selecting things to put in a history of philosophy, we find ourselves in an interesting and compelling place. We could think about philosophy in terms of our lives and our own personal histories and that's maybe something you want to do for yourself as you go through this because we could see that there are certain personal developments that mirror the historical developments of a period as well as we could see some things like the historical developments of certain periods mirroring the historical developments of other periods And what we get is a whole big mishmash of human thought and human understanding. And all these things, all these understandings, they're in our words, they're in our culture. All this history is nothing new. It's things that have been coded into almost everything we do and everything we know. So, like I said, it is very useful, very practical, and very towards making a living out of philosophical information to go ahead and grasp an understanding or have a little picture frame of this history. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Welcome to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. This is the five-minute history of philosophy. Segment 1. Before Recorded History. We have, dating back, 50 to 30,000 years, artifacts that show mathematical computation. We have artifacts, paintings on cave walls, that show symbolization and early symbolic language. The artifacts showing mathematization are bones with grooves, notches, filed into them in one way or another. Um, We have some notion of architectural and agricultural information and knowledge that comes up to us from what we'll call early humanity. I suppose about 50,000 years ago started is what we're going to say. These things change all the time because there's such a wealth of possible evidence and such a poverty of actual evidence. What humanity needed intellect for originally was very practical. Things like simple counting, keeping simple agricultural records, dividing land, charting the stars is something that always seems to be in prehistoric conscious. 
None of this became more than practical until it became religious and fantastic. The first human understandings beyond human understandings seemed to be those of almost holy religious significance, and the first sorts of worship were centered around fertility, they were centered around the sun and the harvest. Basically, the most fundamental and dire human needs of life. When tragedy would strike, when impredictability and chaos would strike, and there was no way to put mathematical sense to it as there is now, or scientific sense to it as there is now, we would turn to some kind of mystical. One of the first gods to be worshipped was known as Pan, and it's a fertility god. Others, such as Marduk in Egypt, or gods of the sun, Sol, were all gods turned to in hopes of bringing simplicity and bountitude to the practical nature of human life. When we get to the early recorded history, most of what we have originally are these kind of uh, theologies, early theologies, in one case a theodicy, and in other cases um, epics. All these compare humans to gods when they start getting more sophisticated, and they're demarcated from philosophy proper by the fact that they don't try to strip bare reality and find basic constituents and basic laws. But yet these things are various very earliest thoughts and our various, uh, very earliest intellectual systems and they had effects and they helped shape what came next. What's going to come next is going to be some still prehistory and I would like to, before we get into that, talk about the kind of evidence we have for that. So next time, we'll have a segment talking about our evidence for ancient Greek philosophy and ancient Egyptian. What is our evidence for claiming that the beginning of philosophy happened in ancient Greek times? Well, it's very true that the ideas that became the beginning of philosophy precede ancient Greek times. They precede Western culture. They precede the Greek city-state. A lot of these ideas come from the East. A lot of these ideas come from a cultural melting point. Before there was even Greece, there was Babylonia. We have a wealth of information from Babylonia and it hasn't really been explored. It's in the form of cuneiform tablets. For all we know there are parts of very old books. Most of what has been discovered out of the cuneiform tablets has to do with math because it's more easier 
to spot calculations than it is to understand a narrative and just see within a narrative that there's something concerning intelligence. We have from ancient Egypt cultures, Egyptian culture, which precedes the Greek culture, papyrus scrolls, having mathematical information, having information about different arrangements of social arrangements and different um, transactions that could happen. And there's all types of these scrolls. Some of them have even been known to have ancient Greek books written on the back of them. In fact, we found one of Aristotle's ancient texts on the back of such a papyrus. Besides for these early writings, we have a wealth of doxographical information, and this is information that has been put in other books and is supposed to be first-hand source quoted, but it's in the context of another book. Diogenes um, Latiars happens to be one of or principal um, authors in this way, although Aristotle told us a lot about the culture that preceded him and that was around him. So why do we put the beginning of philosophy in ancient Greece and why do we usually place it on the shoulders of Thales, of Miletus and the Milesian school? Well, we do so because they were seemingly the first to frame the question, the intellectual question, the wondering of truth in the world, as a non-spiritual question, but as a material question. And it's a question that doesn't make too much sense anymore nowadays, but back then it was very important you know it's a primal question and it asks what is the prime material thing there's an observation empirical of change in nature even now but they were aware of this empirical observation and they were trying to be as scientific as possible of course we have a much different understanding now of what science is but they were trying to account for the observation of change in nature and they noticed that there are certain primal things they gave four elements total as some more primal stuff and philosophers especially Thales first began to speculate that certain elements were more prime you know, in fact, there was and must be some element which is the prime element, which everything else is connected to or everything else comes out of. Now, the reasons for this are very logical, and they are some of the most simple yet complicated <laughs> logical um, facts, logical tidbits that we could look at. And we're going to look at in our next segment these very early simple arguments in an attempt to understand why this is the beginning of philosophy so that's our evidence 
Western philosophy charts its beginnings to around 800 BCE. It's usually claimed that Thales is the beginning of Western philosophy. However, this is an incomplete picture of the philosophy in the world, even at that time, and an incomplete picture of Western philosophy even at that time. In 800 BCE, the Upanishads were known in India, at least the earlier Upanishads, and there's a strong Chinese philosophical tradition. In fact, it's the golden age of Chinese philosophy, part of the golden age of Chinese philosophy, when Confucianism and Taoism were very serious issues and the running of the Chinese state was something of intellectual discussion. All this information reached the West. In fact, Thales, who is said to be of Miletus, but a Phoenician, is by some accounts born in Phoenicia, some accounts of Phoenician parents. Either way, Phoenicia is a more centrally located state, and the Phoenicians were some of the first world travelers. Certainly, when it comes to travel by sea, they were one of the greatest and most far-reached world travelers of their time, definitely. So, Phoenicia is more of a melting pot, and we know that Thales is said to have brought geometry back from Egypt. So why do we continuously say that Thales marks the bounds of philosophy, and not the Upanishads, which consider things uh, such as self-created reality, things such as ultimate and divine truth, or the Confucian philosophy, which considers things such as good moral character, or any other system. Why do we say that this Western philosophy, philosophy as we know it, was started with Thales? Thales is said to have done natural philosophy. And what is natural philosophy? Natural philosophy is this sort of inherently logic, logical and empirical way of looking at the world for ultimate answers. So, we would ask questions like, if something or everything is the opposite of nothing, what is nothing? Is nothing the absence of all some things? Is nothing itself something? Can something come from nothing? Does nothing necessarily precede something? Does it necessarily happen after something? All these questions and questions of how materials interchange between each other, how things change into each other, and observations such as that moisture is the seed of 
humans and moisture nourishes the seed of plants and moisture goes into the sky to become the clouds and falls to become the sea led to this understanding that maybe there's something more primary in nature maybe there's something more primary in the world and perhaps the truth is that there's one thing an element that you know is the something that contradicts nothing so all of this is based on the most primary and logical sorts of thinking there's other ways to think but this is what demarcates the real beginning of what we call philosophy whether or not you agree with that and I don't agree that it's philosophy proper but it's only what we are interested in and have been interested in the absolute real material truth I usually don't read prepared materials for these podcasts but I feel that I have crafted in my forthcoming book Beyond Truth a most enlightening and abridged view of the Malaysian school there's more said there than I'm gonna read but this is what I feel is important to communicate about this certain topic in history so without further ado how can it be true that all is water Thales is said to have based his thoughts originally on the process of changes in nature. Water rises into air, condenses in clouds, returns to the sea, and is pressed into land. So based on his proof, his answer is said to be that we experience the world of water's becoming, and not that of water's being. That is, we only see the process in the world of water becoming other things and transforming back to water. However, truth is not always experienced in the realm of becoming. Rather, the truth is in the realm of being. So according to this argument, the world of being is the world of truth, and there everything is water. Our experienced world is of becoming, and everything here is an illusion of water. Ancient philosophy after Thales was an attempt to make a working theory out of Thales' interesting mess of ideas. Anaximander is his immediate successor, and he does not adjust the dimensions of truth. He takes Thales at his word about being and becoming, and seeks deeper grounds for that theory. So he proposes a radical answer, that the Erstorf, or primary element, is boundless unknown being. Thus, making the answer that what is really real is something we are unable to experience, but that can be made into the objects of our experience, so that it is not something we do experience like water that is also existing truthfully only beyond our perception in being. Rather, it is unknowable and boundless in being, and it becomes things when it is bound into becoming. Of course, the boundless, to aperion, is being, and is turned into the objects of experience in becoming, but Anaximander is at a loss to explain how this happens. This solution was only good enough for Anaximander himself, as his successor Anaximenes departs from this one-dimensional truth concern to establish truth in both the world of being and becoming. What Anaximander needs to do to make progress was show how 
the one becomes the many beings of experience, all the while accepting that it does so as some real knowable sensible thing in both being and becoming. This again produces the problem of identity that required Thales and Anaximander to place reality and truth beyond the world of direct experience. Anaximenes must now provide a justification for how everything has a single essence, but appears to be different. He does so by suggesting a process of becoming that happens in the world of being. Specifically, air, the stuff that gives breath and sustains human life, can be rarefied and condensed without losing its essence as air. So, water is air condensed, fire air rarefied, and earth is air even further condensed past its stage as water. This is unlike Thales saying everything is really still essentially water. Anaximander is saying all is able to be air, and air is able to be all. Air turns into water, and water turns into earth, as though air is the middle state of all. A human being cannot become a waterfall, but both human and waterfall can become air, and air can become both. In being, all is air in some quantity. In becoming, we experience qualities based on the quantity of air in the being of the object. No object is devoid of air, and though an object's essence may not be that of air itself, every object's essence is defined by the quantity of air in its being. Truths about things that become other qualitative objects through quantitative change begs the question of identity again in a new way. No longer can an object simply exist or not, based on its essential properties, which is the law of identity. Now objects exist or not, and properties are of those objects or not. The problem solves in, solved in two dimensions now requires twice, twice the proof, and Anaximenes does not have these proofs. We will discuss the logical parts of these arguments and the proofs crafted in our next segment. Thank you. The theories of the Milesian thinkers present to us some intuitive lines of questioning. Like the Milesian school, we still consider how to identify what is primary, but now we also are considering how what is primary can become what is secondary, and further, we're thinking of how the singular property of what is primary can change into multiple secondary things. The two ancient philosophers who first try to shore up the Milesian thought are Heraclitus and Parmenides. Parmenides attempts to embrace the Milesian ways of thinking by considering the problem of identity and saying that things are what they are and must be what they are for all of time and nothing but. Heraclitus rejects the Milesian project and says that things must be what they are for all of time, but what they are is something that is changing. Heraclitus is very unpopular in his times as a philosopher, and he is known 
to be illogical. He is said to embrace contradiction and say things as wild as that opposites are sames. So while he embraces the empirical part of the Milesian agenda, and to some extent the logical part, he sees that the multiple different conclusions lead to one conclusion, which is that there is what is, and what is is changing. So the only element that could be primary for him is fire, the element that consumes and leaves something new in its wake. So for Heraclitus, the world is, and forever will be, a burning fire. The identity of the one is fire. What are the properties of the one? The only property of the one is strife or changing. Heraclitus says of Homer that he would remove strife from the world, and in doing so, he doesn't realize that he would be wishing the end of all existence. Heraclitus says that man never steps in the same river twice, for new waters are constantly flowing in upon him. And statements like that frustrate the logic of identity. It is said that in Heraclitus's world, local motion is impossible. We can't explain why the arrow flies in any other way except to make reference to the ever-burning flame. And reason is impossible because things are never the same. And the only understanding we can provide and that Heraclitus provides is an understanding of the properties of fire. So, for instance, it is death for souls to become moist, but in becoming moist, they find pleasure. A dry soul is one in active strife, one that is changing. A wet soul is one that is in passive strife and is trying not to change. It would make no sense to talk about the falling of the rains, but it would make sense to talk about condensing water into earth by removing the steams and smokes. Heraclitus sees the universe as being set into motion by vapors, and the heaven to be a swirling of vapors, which at points lets through light. The core of his theory, as illogical as it was at his time, is very compelling and has survived to this date, especially in the actualist versus possibilist quantifications in modal logic. Here, a core problem in philosophy to this day is identified, wherein when we look at the world in terms of time frames, we either have objects that are always the same in every time frame, or objects that are different in every time frame. We will now turn to Parmenides, where the actualist quantification comes from. Heraclitus's rejection of the thoughts of the Milesian thinkers as being logically absurd, yet, however, his acceptance of the theories or style of theories of the Milesian thinkers as being true in spirit 
led him to say that the world is an ever-burning fire, which brought him to many contrary conclusions, all of which he accepts. Parmenides, on the other hand, does not dismiss the Ionian Milesian school as absurd. He embraces their logic, and embraces their form of conclusion. To do so, he makes a distinction in knowledge, and proposes a theory of knowledge. Namely, that there are two sorts of knowing. There is knowing which is knowledge, and knowing which is of opinions. To know of knowledge is to know of the word of the goddess, in this case the word of logic, that tells us that if anything is, it must be, and it must be complete, and it must be what it is forever, and it must be unchanging. It cannot have been started, it cannot ever stop, it cannot be locally disturbed in any way. It is what it is, because it would be senseless to say that it is not, or that it is changing. And this is the truth of things, the higher truth of things. Well, if the higher truth of things is that they are what they are, and they cannot be anything but why do we even bother to learn about opinion? Why even write a section on doxa, or opinion? It seems that the perfect combination of elements, and in this case we don't just mean natural things, but what natural things can make, and the perfect understanding of the perfect combination of these elements, provides us with something that mirrors the real level of knowing. So we look, as Parmenides does, for explanations in opinion that point towards knowledge. For instance, he accepts that fire and earth are the elements that are primary constituents. So our opinions that are able to give us complete pictures of knowledge are somehow worth it or rather, it's worth it to understand the opinions of men, to understand that those that give us the picture of knowledge are of value, are closer to the truth. He gives no real account of how to combine the illusory nature of the world with the truths of knowledge, he doesn't tell us if everything in every moment is existing as it is for all time, never changing. He doesn't tell us if this is God, or if this is the universe, or if what we're seeing is in any way the one that knowledge brings us. Except to remind us that when we see it, in a way that it looks like knowledge, then we are seeing what the truth is. It's not a far leap to see how actualist quantification comes from a theory like this. The notion that the objects of reality 
are actual and self-identical from moment to moment entails the notion that they are what they are through time for all time and can't help but be. As a problem of reference, if we were to refer to something dead, we should be referring, according to Parmenides, to something real. Something still the same thing that has not changed. Anaxagoras of Clazomenae is a fascinating thinker, both to the ancient world and to contemporary society. He was known as the first philosopher to settle in Athens, and he was mature as a philosopher when Socrates was a young man. His theories exercised great influence on the thinkers of Athens, Socrates and Plato as well. In Socrates' Apology, he argues against his accusers that they are confusing him with Anaxagoras. He continues by arguing that it is silly to accuse him of corrupting the youth of Athens. 4. The theories that are being put in his mouth are the theories known to be of Anaxagoras, and the work of Anaxagoras was cheap and available to any of the youth of the city at any time. Anaxagoras holds a theory which seems like an early chemistry. He splits all that is into mind and matter, mind being completely devoid of matter, but that which put matter into motion. Matter originally was infinitely large and infinitely hot, also infinitely small and infinitely cold. The power of mind then began to move the matter and separate it out. Anaxagoras, along with Empedocles, are the last two pre-Socratic thinkers to attempt to make sense out of the Milesian theories. Empedocles' theory, which sees the four elements all as primary, being moved by the forces of love and strife eternally combined and disjoined, and Anaxagoras' theory, which sets mind as separate from matter, and places all the properties of things in matter, and all the motion of change in mind, both attempt to include the entire breadth of the Milesian project. Anaxagoras, however, makes a genuine progressive move in saying that there is no being and becoming as we see them. Rather, there are things combining and disjoining. He, like Parmenides, sees that nothing cannot give birth to anything, and everything must have already been. So, he places everything inside everything else, and uses a theory of what he calls homiaries, that are things that are divisible only into more themselves. And he says that these certain homiaries, whether they be gold or bone or flesh or water, 
have all things in them, but they have the predominant properties of themselves more than anything else. So they are mixtures, but they are mixtures with a predominant proportion. Mixtures set into motion by the power of mind. Aristotle is said to have not discussed him in his metaphysics because he does not refer to things as being or becoming, but only mixing or separating. Anaxagoras held that the moon is lit from the light of the sun, and that the sun was a fiery hot molten mass, larger than Peloponnesia. He explained the eclipse because he knew of the light of the sun coming to the moon, saying that when the earth was in the way, the moon was eclipsed, and when the full moon was in the way of the sun, the light of the sun was eclipsed. He said that the earth, the cold, wet and dry stuff had conglomerated where it is, and that the fiery and rare stuff had went further away into the heaven, the Milky Way being stars that were not lit by the sun. He famously predicted the fall of a meteor. He, along with Parmenides, Empedocles, and Pythagoras, seemed to exercise the most influence on Plato. Pythagoras of Samos is probably the pre-Socratic that has had the most influence on our society today. It's just difficult to see. Although perhaps not, since most every child knows of a theorem bearing his name, and few other theorems bearing anyone else's name. However, Deeper than a mathematical formula, Pythagoras' vision of society has been passed down to us in the Platonic tradition. The elements of Pythagoreanism that were taken by Plato are not simply just number mysticism, but a belief in the mystical nature of the universe in general as well as the transmigration of souls. These two concepts don't enter into pre-Socratic philosophy simple and easy. They are completely at odds with the Marlesian agenda of finding the Erstorf or primary element. One could say that the primary element for the Pythagoreans is number. However, such a concept does not fit into the elemental and force-based worldview of the other pre-Socratics. The appearance of the theory of the transmigration of souls in Plato's theory is not just a simple happening. It is a great event that has an incredible influence on the course the world will take. This event is triggered mainly by the loss of the Athenian city-state in war and by the killing of Socrates. In fact, Plato's writing pre-Pythagorean influence seeks to find the soul, the thing inside that Socrates asked that we look not towards the heaven or to the ground, but inside ourselves for, and the thing that in Socrates 
is still there in the world, even though he has died. So after going to Italy and being affected by the Pythagorean tradition, Plato comes back with a theory of knowledge that tells us that things are real only in the enduring realm of the forms. A place where pure number and pure figure account more for the substance of an object than their experienced nature. It is clear to see that Socrates' knowledge of this life affected his decisions for the afterlife, and his decisions about the afterlife affected his choices in this life. As Plato in his old age turns to trying to understand the demiurge, or that which puts things from the realm of the forms into the realm of the real experienced world of becoming, he comes close himself to crafting the god of Christianity or the one god of Abrahamic religion. Being that the works of Plato and not Aristotle were preserved and made it to the Christian fathers, his notion of being and becoming and the demiurge that places things into the world of the real became a background image for the trinity of God. Pythagoras, the mystical figure, with an entire culture of his own, represented more than just a school of philosophy. He represented a way of life and a way of being. And all kooky theories about reincarnation and capitalists worshipping numbers aside, the Pythagorean tradition gave us and Plato the background for the greatest religious and theological theories to ever come about. Almost everyone throughout the world knows the power of the Holy Roman Empire, even though it is not around today. And of course, Plato and Pythagoras and even the Holy Roman Empire are not around today. But it's still important that we understand that the mystical nature of our thinking is not a simple mistake and it's not a mental disease. It is something that is long ingrained in our tradition. And when we consider wisdom, the soul, and death, we're standing in the shoes of Plato and Pythagoras. Of all the theories of the ancient Greek thinkers, Aristotle's is the most broad, coherent, and cohesive. Aristotle was a student of Plato. In fact, he can be said to be the most excellent student of Plato. And many thought that upon Plato's death, control of the academy would transfer to Aristotle. However, this did not happen, and it was instead given to Plato's nephew. Aristotle was fine with this, as Plato's nephew aimed to preserve Plato's thought and the Platonic tradition. Aristotle himself had problems with Plato's thoughts. He started his own school, the Lyceum. It's from their behavior we get the notion of pedagogy. As they would walk to and from the school, Aristotle would disseminate his teachings. The Lyceum itself was a place of information gathering. They did much cataloging and categorization. As such, Aristotle has pretty distinct theories on how to catalog and classify things. This is where we get the notion of classical logic. 
whereas Plato left us many dialogues expressing his philosophy, Aristotle only left us lectures. These lectures are not dialectic like the Platonic dialogues, rather they are analytic. Aristotle utilizes logic, along with physical and historical analysis, to arrive at his conclusions. He argues that when we begin analyzing our assumptions and providing definitions of definitions, that we risk slipping into an infinite regress, and thus there must be certain propositions or certain logical facts that are primitive and beyond questioning. For him, this primitive takes the form of the law of contradiction. That is, when we speak a proposition, either the proposition, let's call it A, or its contrary, let's call that not A, must be true. So either A or not A must be true, and not both. From this, we get the law of identity, that everything must be itself and not not itself. The law of non-contradiction, that everything must be either A or not A, and the law of excluded middle. If something is A, it cannot be not A, and vice versa. He tackles the Ionian puzzle of non-being, saying that opposites, upon their death, give rise to their contraries. So, even though nothingness does not turn into something, the death of nothingness gives birth to something. Many physicists of today follow this line of thinking in positing the Big Bang. Aristotle sees all physical substance as having four causes. One, the substance or the essence of the thing. Two, the matter or the subject of the thing. Three, the source emotion or the efficient cause. And four, the final cause or the good. He starts the metaphysics by saying that in their hearts, all humans seek to know. He analyzes the history of philosophy before him, saying that the Milesians had discovered the substance or the essence of things, and their predecessors, Heraclitus, Parmenides, and Empedocles, had discovered the matter or the subject of things. He says of Anaxagoras standing out like a sober man that he had come close to discovering the source of motion or the efficient cause in mind. He denies of Plato the discovery of the efficient cause in the theory of the forms, saying that the discovery of the theory of the forms was like someone wanting to count the things in the universe and who couldn't do so with a rather small number decided to do so with a rather large number. The final cause, or the good of things, should be understood as that thing's ultimate place in the universe, its purpose, its position amongst all things. He comes to these conclusions by looking at how we predicate, and what must be predicated of all predicates themselves. He places us not in a world of illusion, like Plato, with a higher realm of things being the truth, but rather as a moment in the grand truth of things. And though it may only be a moment, it is a significant moment. He does not suggest that a deity is the efficient cause, but it is a small step from that which causes the good in all to God. The rediscovery of his theories after a thousand years of being lost gave birth to the Renaissance and the height of Christianity in the West. 